Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino, and my co-host Anne Fernald and I welcome you to the Twice Over podcast, because to teach is to learn twice over. In this episode, Confidently Wrong, we discuss how notions of right and wrong can inhibit student learning. We've been talking a lot about being wrong and the importance of being wrong and the feeling of being wrong and how hard it is for people to admit they're wrong. And so we wanted to talk about it. Um, and we've read uh, Kyla Wazana Tompkins's great essay from the Los Angeles Review of Books. We aren't here to learn what we already know, which is a t- a just the most gorgeous title in the world. And we also looked at some excerpts from a book by Katherine Schultz from a few years back called Being Wrong, Adventures in the Margin of Error. So those are kind of the two texts that we're talking about today. But I wonder, Steve, if you want to talk a little bit about the origin story of this episode, how we got so excited about being wrong. It's certainly something that I have a lot of experience on um, being wrong. My husband's nickname for me is confidently wrong. Actually, you're wrong, Anne. We're not talking about that this week. That's next <laughs> week's podcast. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so, so sorry. <laughs> what was the genesis of this? Well, I was thinking about initial discussions, you know, setting the tone for the course, uh, trying to initial attempts at building community, creating a space where students can openly share their ideas and their thoughts and their questions. And so that had me thinking a bit about when I'm having a class discussion, like what, what, what is it? What's a discussion? Is it a way to assess whether or not the students are engaged, paying attention, doing the reading, prepared for class? Um, is it a way to assess their learning? Um, do they understand what we're doing? But I think a lot of discussion is mostly prompting, right? I'm asking questions. What do you think about that? What's your response? What do you think he meant in chapter two? I wonder from the learner perspective, how they're experiencing discussion. And to put myself in that space, I have to really try to conjure what it's like to be a student myself. Mm -hmm. And was I an enthusiastic participant or was I reticent in class? And there were times when I was really interested and engaged and times where I didn't say anything. And it seems to me that those times are really closely aligned with when I thought I was right and when I thought I was wrong. When I thought I knew I was right, what I was talking about, that this was a valuable contribution. And it also was a way to display to my peers and my professor, I'm a valuable member of this learning community. When I didn't know, when I was wrong or thought I was wrong, I didn't say anything. Yes. And so you think about like that iconic image of um, Hermione Granger raising her hand in class, right? Because she's done the homework in Harry Potter. She's done the homework. She knows the reading and her arm just shoots up and it looks like an arrow. It's going to shoot right up to the sky because she's so sure she's right. And she's so enthusiastic to share the thing that she's learned. And one of the things that I think that we were wondering about or thinking about, you know, comes from Tompkins' essay, right? We aren't here to learn what we already know. If you already know it, and if the only time you ever raise your hand is when you're sure, then how do you move from 
a lack of confidence or a fog of misunderstanding or confusion towards something like feeling like I do understand the material, right? If the classroom is not a space where you can raise your hand and say, I don't get it. Yeah, so if discussions are really performances of effectiveness in learning, right, that I'm gonna just raise my hand and display my acumen here in this, in this particular instance, then if someone else disagrees or has a different take, that mm -hmm. sets up a competitive environment to determine who is right and who is wrong. So now we're not discussing anymore, we're competing. And, and this has real implications for who's willing to participate in such a competitive environment. Are competitive environments the most conducive to student learning? For some students, they may be. For some students, that's really, really fun and exciting. And for other students, it's terrifying. And so one of the things we talked about in the pandemic in a conversation about accessibility is someone shared, oh, I play this really fun game. And the first person to put the right answer in the Zoom chat box wins a point on the quiz or some little, you know, modest prize. And someone pointed out quite fairly that uh, students with certain kind of cognitive or even physical disabilities will never have the opportunity to win that prize, right? So it might be an okay game to play sometimes, but is there a different kind of game you can play other times? Some students really thrive in a competitive discussion atmosphere. They love it and other students don't. I don't want to say that competitive discussion is bad. I don't think that's true. What I do think is me for me valuable as an instructor is kind of thinking about what are a variety of different ways I can invite people to participate in my class so that I'm teaching conscious of the fact that I have different kinds of students in the room some of whom are going to love proving themselves right and others of whom are going to enjoy being tentative and then getting back to the thing about being wrong i want everyone to be able to ask somehow when they just don't get it or they don't understand or to propose something and be wrong and have it be okay um, there are all kinds of opportunities for competition in learning environments. The whole system of university is a, is a you know, class rank and GPA and all of this. So we've set up this idea of scarcity. There's only a handful of really smart people and that's it. And you have to compete for those spots. And that's artificial. That artificiality is so pervasive that classroom discussions may not need to be subject to the competitive imperative. There are all kinds of ways for students to be competitive. There's quizzes, there's papers, there's grades. The other challenge I think might be like, how do I know? Okay, this discussion is kind of a quasi assessment competitive environment to determine who, who's right. Mm -hmm. This discussion is not that, it's community building, this discussion is for you to display weakness to your future competitors about what you don't know. I don't know how the students experience my class in totality. I need to understand first the different kinds of discussions that there are that are possible in a class environment. Why I would choose to engage in one or another of those kinds. 
how I communicate to the students those different kinds and why we're engaging the way we plan to. And all of that should be tied to some like measurable student benefit. What I really liked about um, the TED Talk, Catherine Schultz said, what does it feel like to be wrong? Yes, that was a great moment. And it doesn't feel like anything because we don't know. Right. She says, what does it feel like to be wrong? And people in the audience, you know, kind of shout out all these experiences. Like it's, it's humiliating. It's embarrassing. I feel ashamed. And she's like, no, that's how it feels when someone tells you you're wrong. But there's this moment before you've been told you're wrong when you don't know and you're wrong and it doesn't feel like anything. Feels good because you think you're right. You think you're right. Feeling wrong feels like feeling being right. Being mm-hmm. wrong feels like being right. I want to go back to that moment in the TED Talk where she says, where where people misunderstand as she anticipates they will, right? What does it feel like to be wrong? And people say, well, it's humiliating. It's embarrassing. Because one of the things that led us to want to have this conversation was a comment from a faculty colleague who said, how do I make discussion more engaging when I teach uh, STEM classes that have right and wrong answers? And so there are disciplines where, I mean, in all disciplines, you can be wrong, but there are disciplines where that really is front and center of a lot of discussions, right? I mean, it's easy to be wrong in an English class as well, but it's less uh, front and center in the class. But if you're teaching a class in mathematics and students do not understand, you know, how the function works, they can be wrong and it's important for the faculty member to point out how they're wrong but you also know that you are potentially humiliating embarrassing upsetting the person who's gotten the wrong answer right and so what are the ways in which we encourage participation even knowing that we're inviting students to expose themselves to bad feelings yeah, so that's that's really uh, an interesting problem. So I guess the first thing is to is to sort of tell the students like what are we doing when we're discussing? If we're discussing to assess, then yeah, I can be wrong, and there should there are consequences. Oh, you get a zero. That's wrong, or you feel shame. Mm-hmm. If you set the ground rules in the class that when we what we discuss in class, I mean, it's not a test. We're trying to figure this out together, and so I think that this requires some reconceptualization of what we mean by wrong. So let's imagine that I am working on this project. I'm gonna use coding as an example because I talked with my stepson about this and he did this whole coding project and it had the same error throughout. Okay. And he didn't know it had this coding error and he worked on it for two weeks and he handed it in and it was wrong. And he was in the position of having to explain to his professor what he learned even though it was wrong. All of the things I learned on this project was really interesting that the professor gave him the space to do that, getting him to understand that, yeah, it's it's not great that you made this coding error, but that's really common in coding. It's going to happen all the time. So what, what did you learn from this experience? Not about like getting knocked down and rising up again, not that stuff, but really about coding. What did you learn even though you made this mistake? So the question is, we, we can't learn without being wrong. And if we want to banish being wrong, or we want to shame people when they are wrong, no, not that we're doing that intentionally, right? Nobody likes to be wrong. 
but how do we reconceptualize wrongness in a way that it's positive, right? When I was in graduate school, I wrote a paper and on a poem and the opening of the paper conflated the speaker of the poem with the poet. Basic, basic. That's so wrong. That's like so wrong. Wrong. It's wrong. It's a mistake, right? I mean, it will. You, you feel embarrassed? I was super embarrassed. And the rest of the paper, but this is the point, like the rest of the paper was fine, but there was like a fundamental conceptual error in the first paragraph that persisted kind of in a latent way through the whole paper. It was a mortifying error. It was the, it was an error that I had known, you know, I would have known not to do in high school, but because I was stressed out and doing some other kind of conceptually tricky things in the paper, I just conflated the speaker with the poet. And the professor I had said that to me, and I you know, remember turning bright red, feeling, and, and he said, no, 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 it's okay. It's a good paper. Don't do that again. And I asked him to be my dissertation advisor because the way that he corrected me was so respectful, right? The way that he, he was like, you made a mistake. It's wrong. Don't do it again. Everything else is good. It's a good paper. Yeah. So we've moved from a kind of public wrongness, right? In discussion spaces and classes to a more like, I don't want to say private, but a kind of interpersonal wrongness between me and my instructor. Yep. I think what prompted us to have this conversation was to think about how wrongness affects our classroom community and engagement, maybe. I would imagine that we're grading homeworks. They, they don't all have to be right, the homework problems. You want to That's do a good them. Point. Yeah, you that's want to, right. come to come to class with those problems. And, and that those, your ability or inability to solve a homework problem helps the instructor understand where more instruction might be necessary. And so in that space, there's real utility from the instructor's perspective on wrongness. Oh my God, everybody is really struggling with homework problem three. Let's take a look at this again. Let's take a look at problem three. And what was so difficult for you with problem three? Well, what I didn't understand about problem three, oh yeah, I see that now. I guess it's tricky here. So, you know, a lot of our instruction, certainly the emergent kind of instruction, that undesigned remainder, comes from wrongness, right? Misapprehensions, errors that students make. So if we create spaces where students can't express being wrong, for fear of disapprobation or you know their personal response, then that has real inhibiting effects on how far we're gonna go as a group of learners. That's very helpful. That's very helpful. And I think that students are uh, accustomed to, acculturated to being okay with getting things wrong on homeworks, but the peer pressure of getting things wrong in a synchronous class session in front of other some I mean I don't think most students mind their professor perceiving that they don't know everything students mind their peers perceiving that they don't know something and so and yet you know if you talk about how we can move further through the material as learners, as a community of learners in a course, 
if we could create a classroom situation in which it was possible to be wrong and there was a kind of light touch about it and we could move on, we might avoid perpetuating that mistaken belief in the homework assignment, in the paper, in the conception of what the final project should be. And I think what Tompkins is so great at is, you know, just the title is such a lesson, right? We aren't here to learn what we already know. And that stripping the valorization of showing off and instead placing a high value on a clearly articulated question which is what she goes on to do so what makes a good question what's a good question and it reminds me of our conversation with john craven who talked about question storming right instead of brainstorming where instead they they ask tons and tons and tons of questions and what you value as an instructor is asking informed well thought out questions that elicit good discussion with your peers i don't want to be the questioner in a class discussion the question should come from the students they should be able to sort of articulate why they want to know this why it's important um, how they might find out the answer, how it's situated in, in their plan of learning, like what comes before and after this question, and kind of, th and, and think, it, think it through from in those terms. Because what happens is I think sometimes in, in we're still talking, I guess, about class discussion, um, mm -hmm. is that I, it separates me from the students right? Yes. No longer part of the same group, that it, it highlights my differentiated status from them. And I think that that undermines our sense of community and trust. So partly what I try to do and what I've, what I've seen done is asking meta questions. What did you think about this reading? Was it difficult? Talk with your neighbor about your initial response to the chapter. Was it too long? Was it too short? What do you think about it? Let's talk about that a little bit. And what is that? What's the value of that, do you think? Well, what, it, what it allows the students to do is it creates a space where they can critically engage with what we're doing. <laughs> right? right? Right. Not just the material, but what you think about what we're doing should matter. And one of the things I think getting back, circling back to our colleague who asked, how do I get engaging discussion in a STEM class, especially if I'm talking about, you know, issues that have right or wrong answers, is you could get meta about that as well. Like, why am I teaching you this process? Getting them to understand that could be a discussion that could be open in a way that certain discussions about the technical workings of a process are that's that are are full of right and wrong answers there's all kinds of questions you can ask okay chapter two is about photosynthesis with your partner i want you to think about just highlight three passages from the chapter that you felt were particularly effective at explaining this process and why highlight a portion of the chapter that you felt was really poorly explained or a diagram that didn't make sense 
Talk about what problems you had with this presentation of the material and how it could have been more helpful to you. So partly it's like, what are we, what, why are we talking? If, it, if, the, if it's just an oral quiz, then we don't need to do this publicly. So what's the value in this conversation? What, what am I trying to see or produce as the person who's making you have this conversation? What's in it for you, the learner? And one of the things that's great about encouraging people to talk about some, some, some people call it the muddiest point, right? Like what was the muddiest point in the chapter, right? Encouraging students in pairs or, you know, everyone to share it anonymously or however you'd want to navigate that conversation. If you get people to share it, you might elicit very valuable information about things that people are getting wrong that they don't know they're getting wrong. So I think, you know, oftentimes we feel that these meta conversations are a waste of time, but actually they're interesting, they build community, but they also can uncover deep gaps that wouldn't even be revealed to us otherwise. Right, because that's news to them. So, so I think what you're saying is that one of the value, a value of class discussion could be to map their prior knowledge. Yes. And, and understanding that prior knowledge helps explain their understanding or lack of understanding of some piece of content in the class. So it helps you be a better teacher because, okay, I'm not gonna make this mistake thinking that you know these things that are fundamental for a deeper understanding of this poem. You're assessing the students, but it's an assessment without accountability. In I the best way. I mean, that sounds right. like irresponsible and loosey-goosey, but we don't mean, we mean it in the opposite of that. It's an assessment without accountability because now I have information and I can be a supportive instructor in providing the background that my students need, right? So it's a kind of um, incredibly responsive way of teaching. Part of why I'm so interested in being wrong is I think we need to practice being wrong in front of each other over small things like what year did Virginia Woolf write Mrs. Dalloway so that when we're wrong in larger ways where we've actually maybe harmed someone who's in conversation with us, we can also extend that person the forgiveness and the grace to apologize and come back into the conversation. Yeah, yeah. So how do we create spaces where rightness and wrongness are less salient? And I think that's what I've been trying to do in this conversation to kind of think about, are there ways to create spaces in class or learning environments where, you know, rightness and wrongness aren't, aren't that's not the dichotomy it's like knowing or not knowing no if you spend two weeks on a computer coding project and you press enter to make the program run and nothing happens and you see you've made a systemic error that's not a wasted two weeks you might have learned a whole bunch of things about that language about how programming works you might even have learned the crucial lesson of the absolute importance of precision 
in typing out computer code. That's one of the very first important things you learn. If you've got a typo, it doesn't work, period. Yeah. The computer is not forgiving with typos. Um, and so that in itself is an urgent and essential lesson. And if you learn that in a pretty painful way, you may really know it. Well, the problem is, is that this notion of wrongness is really inhibiting toward growth. Anything performative. When my son was learning at the guitar, he'd come and play a song for me. I'm like, whoa, that's that's awful. <laughs> you are, that is the wrong way. That's wrong. I've heard this song before. That's wrong. That's not how you play that song. Like nobody's going to say that. Right. That's not sort of not how it works. We understand that. Wow. You're so much better than you were a month ago. That's amazing. And it's it's with anything. It's like cooking or baking or painting anything. We, we don't frame it in terms of being wrong. Are there things, though, that are wrong? But I guess what I'm thinking about is, do we focus too much in, in the artificial space that is a classroom? Yes. On right and wrong. And do we not think about the continuum of development over time? Whereas if you poke, you know, if you could take a slice out of any moment in the development of my expertise, such as it is in you know teaching and learning or yours as a Virginia Woolf scholar, you'd be wrong. Yes. So what does that mean in that snapshot? It's insignificant in the totality of your development, but in some ways it's really significant because it was key to your development overall. So the question is how do we weight this and how to create space in a classroom for students to understand like it's, we wanna go beyond wrong. We do, we do. We aren't here to learn what we already know. Yeah. So I want to say, Anna, in reflecting on this talk, I think I got to say, I think everything you've said has been completely wrong. <laughs> Confidently wrong. <laughs> Twice Over podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, with new episodes appearing twice each week. For host and guest bios and show notes, please visit our website, twiceoverpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at TwiceOver1 or email us at TwiceOverPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>